now that we've shut down the Patreon and we're no longer putting out new episodes over there, we wanted to put some of the old episodes out here on the free feed. But due to how old some of them are, we wanted to provide a little bit of context before each episode. So today's episode was recorded on June 3rd, 2021. It is once again answering some Q&A from our Facebook group. You might notice we skipped an episode here. If you're looking for episode 10 from the Patreon, that was released earlier this year as episode number 53 on this main feed. So if you're looking for number 10, go to episode 53, How to Be Different in High Ticket Dropshipping. And today we will be talking through drop-off at checkout and credit card points and other Q&A from our Facebook group. Please enjoy this episode of the Patreon from June 3rd. 2021. Hey, hey, welcome back. John and Ben here, episode 11 of the Dropship Podcast. Uh, and in this episode, we're Coming back to some questions and answers, questions that um, you all asked a few weeks ago that we didn't didn't get to in our last Q and A episode. We're going to jump onto those, plus some some extra great questions that um, we've been asked uh, over the last couple of weeks that we'd love to answer on the show as well because we think it'll be helpful for you all. Benny, how are you doing? Man, I got to tell you, I love Q and A episodes because. Then we like the content is there for us. The content is the hardest game out there of like just constantly trying to think of ideas. And so like if there's areas that we're not addressing or like you want us to deep dive on something, send them our way. Like th- this makes the the podcast so much easier. And so I'm just smiling over here that there's we don't have to sit here and rack our brains for I- ideas for what to talk about today. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the whole whole point of uh, the podcast from our perspective was to, you know, use it as a vehicle to help people with what they're uh, you know, what they're working through with this business model and help them be more successful. So definitely answering answering questions and, and topics that, um, you know, people want to hear about uh, as they're going through their their daily stuff with their business is, is right on the money for us, for sure. Oh, you know me. All this stuff is just in my head and <laughs> I struggle to get it out. And so like uh, if there's, again, something you want to deep dive on, just get me going, especially if it's SEO related, because I could talk all day about keywords. <laughs> yeah, I know you can. So yeah, totally what the Facebook group's there for, but you can also add things when we post in the um, in the membership area, when we post up new episodes, you can comment in there with any, any, any follow-up questions you have or any topics you'd love us to jump on um, because it's something you're dealing with in your business at, at that particular point in time. Just go wild, post away, and we will absolutely get to everybody sooner or later. Some of these so, people have been waiting for a while, so uh, let's get to yep. the, the questions let's that have been around it. a little while first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the first one we have is from John Murphy. Thanks for the question, John. Uh, and John's question was, you know how they say the check with the checkout process, there is a drop-off of approximately 50% at each step leading to checkout, so that's like add to cart, reach checkout and purchased. Uh, I've always had around a 50% drop off from added to cart to reach checkout. But then from reach checkout to conversion is always a big drop off. It's not a temporary issue. It has always been that way. How would you suggest I approach that to improve the conversion rate? For me, there's multi parts to this question. 
John, mm. John and John. Uh, I think we should back up real quick before we like really jump into his question. Like, let's back up and say, you know, is it typical in e-commerce to have a fifty percent drop off to another fifty percent drop off to another? Like, I've heard that said as well. It, has that been your experience with people you've worked with, John? Uh, I would say yes, across most of the world, particularly on people with people who are doing higher amounts of traffic. Um, so I think what I see, uh, and there are some exceptions to this, but mostly um, is as people's business grows, um, so, sorry, I'll go back a step even further. For people who have just started their business, you know, you tend, you do tend to see like they've got a brand new business. You do tend to see a bit of a drop off between the reach checkout to conversion, right? That, that last step, just because, you know, their, their website, their business isn't firing on all cylinders yet. They're still sort of testing ideas, but for people who have a more established business um, with smaller traffic numbers, I tend to see less of a drop off between each of those steps. But when people start getting into bigger numbers, you know, like, you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of visits a month, you know, particularly when I see with, with a lot of organic traffic, which tends to be a bit more top of funnel, um, I do tend to see um, a, like a bigger drop off um, between some of those steps. And sometimes it's the first and the second step. There's a big drop, bigger drop off. Sometimes it's... Um, you know the the uh, the the latest steps, uh, the the last step. But yeah, I mean, it's not. I don't think it's unusual. How about you? Yeah, I've seen it all over the place. So I just pulled up one of my business, so my 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 pet health store, um, and I w- and wanted to see how does that differ versus like high ticket products. So my pet health store has this year whatever time frame I'm in here, uh, a chunk of eleven thousand visitors has 504 add to carts and 386 reach checkout and 270 people converted. So 4.45% added to cart, 3.41% reach checkout and 2.38% uh, converted. So those numbers are not definitely not into half. And, and it really, I'm sitting over here thinking as I'm talking to you through uh, previous clients, I would say, I would say this reflects more of what I've seen than the 50-50 drop-off model, but I think you're right, John. I think there's a lot of factors here, right? Like, number one, let's just address added to cart. Like, most people, when they're doing conversion rate optimization, um, they're not necessarily trying to get people to convert. They're, they're trying to get people to take the next step. And so what is the next step based on the traffic you have? So to your point, if it's a lot of top-of-the-funnel uh, content. If it's you know answering a question that is super t- high uh, up in the funnel, it's very at the very top of the funnel. Your next step isn't to get them to add to cart, right? It's to get them to go from that blog post to the product page or from that blog post to a collection page. If your traffic is to the collection page, which might be more brand focused, your job is to get them to the product. If you're if you're if you're targeting bottom of the funnel keywords that are sending them to your product page, your goal is to get them to add to cart. Uh, and then I I think from there how many people are really focused on the next steps in the funnel? Now, Shopify takes a little bit of this away from you, like your ability to do anything here. But if Mm. you really outline all of the things that someone could do when they come to your site, depending on where they go, they start running out of options the further they go down. But you're also probably not addressing them. So if somebody landed on your blog post for um, brand versus brand pellet grill, if you will, um, 
you want them to go check out one of the two brands you just mentioned there. And you probably are retargeting somebody who went to that blog post to get them to go back to that collection page that they hopefully went to. If they went to a collection page, you're, you're ideally trying to get them to a product. If they went to a product, you're 100% remarketing back to that product or perhaps back to content to start this flow over again. But if someone adds to cart... Um, are you doing anything special to, to, to people who added to cart? Are you, are you retargeting them with some sort of offer that it has them segmented so you know they added to cart? If they reach checkout, but they never converted, are you retargeting them in some different way? You should also have their email at this point. Are you doing anything besides your standard abandoned carts? Uh, which I think is a, a question later on in this thing of, of what else you can do. It is actually, yeah. Um, but they're running out of options. If they added a cart, they can leave, right? If they reach checkout, they can go back to cart or they can leave. Like you have to think about like the options they have. And then are you addressing each and every scenario of what they're doing in your business? And I, I think more people are focused on sending only bottom of the funnel traffic and only retargeting those bottom of the funnel visitors and not necessarily following them all the way throughout their journey and, and addressing what objection they might have at each point. And so that's going to skew the numbers always. You're always going to have a higher add to cart um, than you're going to have reach checkout and sessions converted. But I don't think it follows the same linear line that is definitely touted a lot in the, in, in the other Facebook groups and other podcasts that are out there that it's that, you know, 50% cutoff. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. Yeah, look, I don't necessarily agree with that 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 sort of set breakup. I mean, the, the industry and a lot of industry figures love producing really nice, clean stats to to get people's attention and say, "Oh, this is what it is." And they're they're really ever actually true, to be honest. Um, I was just looking at a site that I'm involved with, um, a high ticket site that did a little over six hundred thousand in sales last month, um, and the stats on that. One was uh, added to cart. There were 1,266 ads to cart, which is about 2% add to cart rate. This had about 60,000 visitors last month. Uh, reach checkout was 399 and then purchased was 300. Probably a little bit more if I take into account draft orders, which would have converted into sales. So um, the, the split there was massive between the, ad, the added to cart and the reach checkout but the reach checkout to purchase was a much, much smaller drop-off percentage-wise. So, um, yeah, I think, once again, that's nowhere near a 50-50 sort of dropping off rate there. Um, there's a much, there's there's a totally different spread there. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think part of what you have to think about as well is like, uh, it kind of goes along with what you were saying, but, you know, so the, the psychology between somebody who drops off after adding to cart and somebody who drops off after reaching checkout is completely different, right? So people who add to cart, people will often do that. Like there's numerous, there's a few psychological reasons, right? There's actually a recognized, like actually a studied and recognized psychological behavior with people who add to cart that it's actually, um, they get a buzz out of it, right? It's like, I can't, it has a name. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but it's like Dopamine. people will add to cart. They actually feel like they purchased something. So people who are like, they're like compulsive sort of shoppers. Adding to cart makes them feel like they purchased something even though they didn't purchase something, right? So you even get that level of psychology. Like that person is probably not really ever going to buy something from you, but they just like to add to cart. Other people add to cart like as a wish listing sort of thing um, when they might convert at some point in the future, but they're still not nowhere near the point of conversion yet. And so they're just adding to cart, um, you know, <clears throat> to sort of, 
you know, take a little bit of a micro step, but they haven't, they're not ready to make the full commitment yet. Whereas people who reach checkout, right? They reach checkout, they put in their details. They're literally like one or two clicks away from converting. I think if they're not converting, it's a little bit different, right? And you're more likely at that point that those people have um, some really specific, at least a portion of them, have some really specific reasons why they're not progressing the purchase right there. Um, and once again, it could come down to, that could be a number of things. They might not be clear about certain things to do with how you're going to deliver on the product. They might not be clear about, you know, um, how what you're offering is better than your what your competition's offering. You know, they might be in three people's checkout process at that point. Um, you know, there, there could be a range of things. They could have un unanswered questions, as you mentioned. Um, and so you've really got to think hard about what those might be you've got to actually ask people like if you're talking to somebody you know you should be art like often in your customer service you should ask them questions like is there anything at this point that's holding back from making a purchase holding you back from making a purchase listen to what people say um and and then based on what they say like actually address that in your marketing somewhere in your in your own sales funnel in your content on your product pages wherever is the most appropriate place to address common objections that you hear um, you've got to actually be pretty proactive with that. And then following that, for people who are reaching checkout, yeah, you got to go, I think you've got to take whatever efforts you can to um, follow them up somehow. And that, that is a later question we're going to answer. So we might leave some of the specifics there to, to that question. But um, yeah, just having sort of a standard abandoned cart email sequence, I don't think that's enough. Um, uh, when you're talking about high ticket, particularly, um, where the, the risk to that, like, you've got to think like a lot of the stats you hear as well, like most of the e-commerce industry is selling low ticket stuff, right? Like a tiny percentage of the e-commerce industry is selling $3,000 products online. We're like the vast majority, minority of people. We're a tiny minority out of the overall market, right? And the, 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 the process that the customer is going through is, is radically different the thought process, right? The, the risk involved in spending $3,000 online versus buying, you know, a $40 pair of shoes or something like that is, is fundamentally different. Um, and even if you're talking about people who might have a bit more money, who we tend to be focused on with high ticket sites, there's still a risk involved there and it's a subconscious thing. Um, and so, the way that you approach people who haven't converted yet, I mean, maybe some of those nice clean numbers apply when you're selling selling really easy to sell stuff. And frankly, low ticket stuff is a bit like shooting fish in a barrel sometimes if you've got a decent product. Um, selling high ticket stuff is harder just because there's a lot more going on for the customer than, they, than, it, than, than it is if they're buying a consumable or throwaway product. Um, and so, Sometimes you have to work on them a lot harder uh, to get them across the line or, or do a lot more for them. You know, there's more objections. There's, there's, there's potentially more barriers in your way. And so once again, the more you can go out of your way to address those, um, particularly when, when you think about your competition in the market, a lot of whom are going to be very lazy around this stuff, then the better you're going to do. And I think as well, along the way of doing that, um, as we talked about in our last episode, we were talking about, you know, part of what we're talking about was giving your customers sort of a unique experience and 
and doing more than what other people are doing. You know, if you, you're going out of your way to help people through the purchase process, then you're going to set your business apart, you know, in your market. Um, and that's, that's going to have flow on effects. I think that will be positive for you. Yeah, I think you can look at a few other things here too, right? So to, to address you more directly, John, you said it's not a temporary issue. It has always been that way. Uh, how would you suggest I approach that? So like only because I know what industry you're in, I know that you tried to market to everyone and then you totally took that down to a very, very small sub niche of the niche and you really, really targeted that niche. Number one, you did a fantastic job with that. Uh, but number two, like... Uh, was it always that way before? And if it's always that way now, then this has nothing to do with like the products you're selling or, or the people you're targeting because you, you already switched kind of the products you're selling and the people you're targeting here. And so like my brain would immediately go to what does your checkout look like? Like, have you, have you gone through your own process? Um, and, and thinking through, you know, just knowing your industry, I got to believe this is almost 99.9% males that are ordering from you. Maybe there's some females. Um, Certainly, I know some females that are in that in that niche around here, but it is rare. Uh, and so, like, have you gone through? Are you using Apple Pay and Google Pay and like Shop Pay? Are you using all of the immediate payment systems? Because literally, when I reach checkout, if I don't have Apple Pay, there's no fucking way I'm entering all my information. Uh, I want to be able to click that Apple Pay button, double click my Power button, and be done. Uh, I don't. I don't want to go through the process. So, number one, do you have all the payment systems in place? Have you looked at the language uh, so you can go to your theme settings and language and actually change some of this stuff in your checkout, like the continue to shipping button? Uh, you can change that from continue to shipping to let's get you free shipping or something like that. Encourage them to click the button, not just use what stock information is there from, from Shopify. Uh, on the next screen, I believe it says like continue to payment or um, so th I know there's some weird phrasings in there that I've adjusted on, on other stores. And so think about how you can adjust the, the language or some of the words that are used in the boxes at checkout. You can change all of that stuff. Uh, and then, you know, take a look at uh, are you charging shipping? Are you charging taxes? Are you like, are they abandoning on mobile versus are they abandoning on desktop? Like I would get as granular as you can on all of this data. Where are they clicking? Where are they not clicking? What device are they on? What device are they not on? What payment systems are mo most people likely to use? What payments are they not? Uh, if you have PayPal on your store, that button 100% fucks up your checkout and like shoves everything to the side. Same with your cart page. Um, have a coder go in there and like make it look a whole lot more pretty. Uh, just take a look at all of the little things because I would say it is, it, I've never seen this scenario where you are dropping, you know, 50% off from add to cart to checkout. Maybe, maybe that's okay. I would say it should be less than that too. double tech, like look at your cart page, uh, but having a giant drop off and moving from one audience to another and targeting completely different human beings here. Um, something needs to be changed perhaps in the language or the, the ease at which somebody can purchase this product, or maybe it's uh, risk reversal, which John is saying that maybe you're just not addressing the risk reversal uh, and, and really taking away any worries, any has once they hit checkout mm. yeah yeah i don't think if, if there's a big drop off from added to cut to reach checkout I, I tend to look at how the store's like generating its traffic and stuff like i said like for john he gets a significant amount of his traffic from organic search right i actually don't think that's that unusual or that much of a problem that just means that you're getting a lot of traffic that's not ready to buy right now but it doesn't mean they're not buying from you in the future i don't i don't think that one's necessarily a massive problem but when you've got the, a, a big drop from reach checkout to conversion, so they've been on the checkout page and they're, they're literally like nearly one step away from buying and you're seeing a lot of people drop off there. I think that's more of an issue. And there's going to be more 
readily identifiable things and, and some of the things you've said there are, are, are great, great, great points and great ideas, but there's definitely going to be some um, specific things that are going on that's causing that. Um, whereas the added to cart thing to reach checkout, like adding to cart is not really that much of a commitment in my, in my, in my book. Um, I, I like to see it, but you know, if you're getting a lot of organic traffic, if you're doing a lot of content marketing, you're getting, you're getting people who are on your site who are not ready to buy it. That's just a reality. And so, um, yes, you've got to have a plan in place to, follow them up as you say maybe do some retargeting around that and all that sort of business uh, and move them closer to the point of purchase but it's for high ticket products the the path to conversion could be a month or two long or more and a lot of those people add to cart before they actually plan to buy so as long as they do buy at some point whether it's a month later two months later i mean i don't really i don't really mind too much for high ticket stores for a low ticket store it'd be different i'd say i'd have a different response to that but for a high ticket store i don't think it's that big a deal I love the questions when the answer is, I don't know. Like there's so many factors here. There's so many, we just made him drink from a fire hose as we talk through many of the things that could be. And so I would encourage you to, you know, number one, get clear on your data. And then, you know, if you're going to attack this problem, uh, attack one thing at a time so that you can measure it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Moving along. Uh, next question. Tips for building your email lists from Samantha. Thanks, dude, for the question. Um, yeah, cool. Email. We haven't really talked about that on email and email marketing on the podcast before, I don't think. Um, we've actually got a couple of uh, couple of questions on this here. But uh, look, uh, I mean, for me, tips for building your email list. It's, it's a good question. I always get this question a lot from people who are earlier in the process of um, uh, building their high ticket dropshipping business. Everybody's like, oh, they know they want to have an email list. They know they need, it'd be great to have a bigger email list, but they're like, no one's joining my email list, right? <laughs> how, how do I change that? So for me, um, I will say very much as a precursor step to this, that building an email list is significantly easier if you're doing some form of content and content marketing. Like literally, when it comes to building an email list, that's a game changer for me. And a lot of high ticket dropshippers are not doing any content. And that is one of the main reasons why they struggle to build an email list. Because if you don't have any, any, any content on your site, right? you're not gonna be getting many people who are further up the funnel. And let me tell you right now, people who are at the bottom of the funnel don't need to join your email list. There is almost no reason for them to do that. They already know what they wanna buy. They're not looking for any sort of education or anything. So the only reason at that point that they're likely to join your email list is if you're offering them a discount in return for joining your email list. And I don't like to do that. I don't like to do that at all, right? Um, I'll, I'll put that out there. That's one of my recommended ways not to build your email list. Like give, here's 10% off if you join my email list. To me, you're just automatically cutting your throat to do that, um, particularly when you're working with high ticket dropshipping margins. Um, <clears throat> you know, so I'd say not that, but uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're getting more 
um, traffic that's higher up the funnel, like, you know, top of the funnel, middle of the funnel type traffic, you know, people who are still sort of in a bit in the research phase, right? Those are the ideal people to join your email list because they're still hungry for you to tell them something, for you to help them through that, through that buying journey. And you can offer them things to help them learn more, to, ed- to educate themselves around your products. What's the right product? What's going to give them the solution they're looking for? And all of that sort of stuff. And so email marketing, when you're doing that, gets a lot easier. Right? Because email marketing kind of has two functions. It's to nurture people who haven't bought from you yet towards their first port, their first purchase, and to get to to uh, build your customer relationships post-purchase. So with the aim of getting them to come back and buy from you again and again. Um, you know, so if you look at it on the front end. Uh, if all you're doing is talking to people who are already at the bottom of the funnel, they don't really need any nurturing as such. And so your opt-in rate at the bottom of the funnel is always going to be pretty low. Right? And so once again, a lot of high ticket dropshippers for me have focused on the, only the bottom of the funnel. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I think that's where a lot of people have trouble building their email list. Um, so, you know, when you start having content on your site, on every content page you have, you can offer people a specific opt-in. You can put together any number of things to help them learn more about whatever it is they're there to learn about. Uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, the other thing, so that that's, I mean, you know, I don't know how deep we want to go into that, but um, that's, that's one thing. If you've got content, you can... that means you're getting people looking at that content who want more, right? They want to know more. And so they're totally much more likely to be open to joining your email list. You know, following on from that, if you're asking people to opt into your email list, you've got to give them very specific reasons to opt into your email list. So another mistake I see a lot of people making is subscribe to my email list and you'll get tips, tricks, and discounts. Not specific, there's no value. There's no discernible value to that for the subscriber. So in today's age, people want to know exactly what they're going to get from you when they join your email list. And they want to get something immediately, right? That has, that they have can attach some discernible sort of value to. So if you don't have that, if there's nothing super specific there, then once again, you're not going to get people opting into your list. Um, and then the third thing I would say, if you, that that's working really well at the moment for me is um, using quizzes. I'm a big fan of quizzes at the moment. Uh, So once again, being really creative and utilizing quizzes to help um, people move through the sales funnel, which they're totally useful for. Um, Grabbing an email address when somebody goes through a quiz is very easy. And when somebody goes through a quiz and gives you specific, gets a specific answer at the end of the quiz, you can then send them really specific emails, automated emails based on their quiz results. And uh, once again, it's a perfect way to move people towards a sale. I'll stop there and let you answer, Benny. Yeah, I don't think you left me much room to explain. I would just, I would look at it like, number one, let me be clear. I was part of a business that we scaled into enormous numbers and never got here. Um, I think it's important, but I also don't think it's like it. It 
it's a big project because you need to to give value, right? And so like that, that's the point I want to make is like, do you have value to give? What is it you're offering them? Like John said, when you're when you're attacking people and you're only run, like let's say you're only running the three tier funnel and you're spending all your money on like very 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 bottom of the funnel terms. What value do you have to give someone like that? They've made up their mind. They understand what they want. They they really other than like, can you help them convince their wife to let, allow them to make this purchase? What value do you have? Um, it, it's a discount. And I too, like John, don't like giving discounts unless you have a consumable product that if you just get it in their hands, they're going to keep coming back. And so, um, I I think it this all revolves around content for me as well. And like as you heard in the last episode, it's not that hard to lay out the entire journey for somebody based on the product that you sell and go answer all of those questions and compare brands and compare products and compare, uh, you know, different features uh, that come with different brands. And so like, if your value proposition is I can help you make this decision, uh, somebody higher up in the funnel is going to be like, Oh, thank God. Somebody who's done this before and can help walk me through this. Uh, quizzes are wonderful for that as well. That's the value you can bring. And so I do think it revolves around content. I don't think content is that hard. If you're, if, if this is something you're struggling with, tell us and we'll like break this down even further. But if you can, follow somebody throughout their journey and create that content on your website, you're going to have the assets to send them through email marketing. Otherwise you're going to get them on your list. And what are you going to send them? Like, let's think this through. If you write, sign up for my list today and get 5% off your purchase and they don't buy today, what's next? Do you have more emails beyond that? If so, what do they even say? I'm struggling to think where you're going to send them after that if you don't have content answering all of these questions. And so it's very easy to write that blog post put it on your site, then take that same content, meet them where they're at and put that in an email and walk them through that journey of answering all the questions they may have before they purchase and comparing brands. And, um, this pretty much handles your email marketing for you, in my opinion, but you have to, you have to be filling that sponge, uh, at the top in order to filter people through and meet them where they're at. Yeah, totally. And I agree. Like, I mean, you don't need to be doing email marketing to make, to make money right in, in this business model. Um, but at the same time, if you were doing email marketing and you're making, if you're not, if you're making a decent amount of money with no email marketing, right, and you start doing it, you're going to make more money, right? And I think the important thing to say about email marketing as well, which is a bit off the topic of just how do you build your email list, um, is you've got to remember that you can't just start doing email marketing like let's say you build up a big list of emails right from customers let's say you have thousands of customers you've you've collected them over a few years or a couple of years or something like that and you've never sent them any emails and then you start sending emails even though they're your customers guess what it ain't going to work for you. you you can't just switch email marketing on and off whenever you want to that's the quick way to end up in the constant spam folder so if you're going to do email marketing, you've got to do it. You've got to do it consistently, right? Um, but if you do it consistently, like, I mean, you know, I've had people who go through, um, you know, my program and they're making 20% of their revenue just off email, sending emails regularly, right? Um, and th- these are for people who are doing six-figure months, right? So um, while I think it's not necessarily the first thing you need to focus on doing in your business because you want to start making your first sales, uh, you know, building your own audience that you own and you can take with you anywhere. Uh, like literally, it's a bit of a no-brainer for me. Uh, I, I don't see why you wouldn't do it. But to make it work properly, you've got to be doing other things. And that's why I think marketing for a high-ticket business, it's like a system. There's a number of things that when you do them together, 
they work much better. So a number of strategies and content marketing and email marketing go together kind of like peas in a pod. If you're doing both of those things, they both work a lot better, right? Whereas if you try and do one like email marketing without content marketing, it doesn't really work very well. So yeah, just knowing where you are, Sumanth, uh, you have a lot of content. Uh, go give them the next step in their journey. Offer them the next step in their journey that you will hold them by the hand and show them the next thing based on whatever piece of content you have on your website. Um, you have enough there to walk people through a journey, and that's as simple as email marketing is. Just don't don't send them an email with like two lines and say, go click here to read the blog post. You're asking them to do too much. Meet them exactly where they are and answer the question in the email uh, and only send them where they need to go out of their email. Otherwise, you're just going to train them to be anti-customers. Oh, all right. Let's let's move on. Got a question here from Robert. Thanks, Robert, for the question. What is the recommended pre-order process? Uh, so I think what Robert's getting at in this question, just because I know I've I think I've spoken to him about this before, uh, we had a chat about it once, was sort of um, like how, how do you manage pre-orders? If you've got products that people want to buy, um, they're out of stock. Uh, which for a lot of people in high ticket dropshipping at the moment, this is a common, a common theme, a common occurrence out of stock products uh, still, even after we've had uh, COVID for so long and, and, and whatnot, a lot of uh, manufacturers are still struggling to keep up. Um, so you've got a product that's out of stock. You've got a lot of people who want to buy it. You know it's coming back into stock in the future. Um, so should you be taking pre-orders and, and how do you handle pre-orders as you take them like from customers? that is you know, thoughts on that, Benny? yeah i think this is tough right um uh, it's a world we live in now and so um this is probably something john that you should build into your course because i don't see it going away anytime soon there's like it's not even like a manufacturer issue i know some people are having that where uh look i think i think our mutual friend brian is having that too like uh, you know he's kind of a small fish in a big fitness pond and they want to serve the big fitness manufacturers before they want to help Brian with some of the components. And so mm -hmm. I think, I think this is happening all over all kinds of different industries. But beyond that, there's like an actual container shortage in the world. Like there's not enough containers to move this stuff. And so supply has, is not meeting demand and the cost of containers are going through the roof. And so uh, some people are just, they're, they're going to wait until they have a cheaper container to ship their products over. It, it just doesn't make sense to pay what you need to pay to have a container. And so um, I'm not sure I have a recommended process here. This is actually something I'm working through with my team right now. Uh, and so I'm not sure I have a comment here other than once I have something that works for me, I'm happy to share it and, and chuck it in your course, John. Or if you have something that you're working with clients on that is is very processed out, um, definitely we should get that shared into Dropship Breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of important points to say, right? Uh, so, I mean, I've definitely been thinking about this because I've been talking to people more on a one-on-one -on -one basis about it, because as you can imagine, that is a common question. Um, so I think there's, there's a few important fundamental points to say about it. So if you're going to open a product up for pre-order and let's say you, it's going to be a couple of months before the product ships, right? And you're going to take people's, you know, but you want to start, you know, you want to grow your business, you want to take those orders, people are prepared to, to wait. Um, you know, I think firstly, you need to be as clear. Well, firstly, you need to recognize from your perspective that 
that might not be a smooth process. So often suppliers will say, yeah, it's going to be available in two months and then it's not. Um, so you have to be prepared for that. Now, some suppliers are very good. They have a very tight sort of, um, you know, uh, supply and fulfillment chain that's well tested and they'll be right on the money with it. But often there can be unexpected delays, as Ben's noted. I mean, some of these problems are not just around the manufactured products that they're, they're around, you know, getting getting things on a boat and, and sometimes even um, getting them received on the other end. You know, there's another result of, of COVID and things like this is that, you know, customs procedures in a lot of countries have been slowed down and just unexpected stuff like that which can screw it out. So you got to, I think you've got to accept that, that if you're going to go down this path, there's going to be some potentially some messy bits to it and potentially some unhappy customers that you're going to have to deal with as well. And, you know, that a lot of people struggle to deal with unhappy customers, but, you know, it's just something you've got to kind of mentally prepare yourself for. Having said that, um, if you, if you, like, if you think you can do it, I, I think it's a good thing to do, but you want to be really clear with your customers about that process, like before they place the order. So if you've got a product, it's going to be on pre-order. You want to communicate with people on the product page about what that's going to look like, right? If, you, if you're saying on the product page, you can pre-order today, be really clear about when it's going to ship or when you expect it to ship, I should say, um, and all of that. If you're getting people who are on your customer service team talking about the product, make sure your customer service team understand what they should say to people about the, once again, some of those points around shipping and whatnot for that product that they're taking pre-orders on and be really clear with your customers about it. Somebody places a pre-order um, a pre-order for that product and they pay, your order confirmation emails for that product should once again reiterate what the expected shipping timeframe is and all that sort of thing. Because even if you put it on your product page, a certain percentage of people won't read it. Um, they'll read it or they'll read it and they'll forget two seconds later what they actually read. So you've got to, throughout that pre-order process uh, and, and that wait time between when you take the order and when you ship it uh, or when it gets shipped by your supplier, you need to have communication with the people who are waiting. So don't just take the order, wait two months and never speak to the customers in between. Send them an email every now and then. Make a little list of people who have got the pre-order for that product send them an email and just say, look, it's getting close to the date. Everything's on track, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just to keep them engaged with it. You don't want them forgetting and, and all of this sort of thing or getting cranky because they forgot what the shipping time frame was or they, they have a misconception in their mind about what's going to happen. Um, regular communication is key. When you take the payment, you've got to quarantine that payment. So don't, if, if you're not paying your supplier straight away for that pre-ordered product, and sometimes you will. You might buy it straight, pre-buy it straight away with your supplier so that you're guaranteed to get it. And I think that's actually a good thing to do if you can. But some suppliers won't let you do that. They're like, no, you pay me when we get the products here, right? Which is a little bit more problematic because once again, somebody else might buy them who's a bigger fish when they do get there. But if you're taking a customer's money and you're not going to um, uh, buy it straight away, you need to set that money aside. You can't leave it in your business bank account and just let it sit there because what you're running a risk of doing is that you'll spend that money before you've paid for the product. And of course, you know, if you're not, if you don't have a good uh, like bookkeeping system in place, then your chances of doing that are decent, you know, and that's going to put you in a really sticky situation two months down the track when you have to start fulfilling those orders. I would also say 
don't even the profit off those orders even if you're prepaying the supplier ahead of time the profit off those orders like the bit that you're keeping should once again you should quarantine it have like a second bank account or something you can put it in because some customers may cancel their orders so you're going to have to refund them the whole amount um and uh you know once again if you've spent the money that's going to be difficult to do or it could could put you in a in a tricky situation where you can't pay your other business bills because you're trying to refund customers and so on and so forth. So, I do think you have to be fairly careful about it um, because you know sometimes suppliers will make commitments around pre-order stuff and then you get you get to the point the end of the line and they're like, oh no, we, we didn't get enough in or oh no, you know, and there's just a problem. So I think you've got to be really careful. Do it if you can because a lot of customers want to do it. But be careful with the money um, and uh, regular communication. I think that's that's the main thing for me. Yeah, I think I think we can maybe like figure out a way to get this like standardized. Um, something something that's going to need to be done on every high ticket dropshipping business uh, everywhere right now. And so, uh, if we get that done, let's chuck it in your course, John, and uh, we'll make sure we let everyone know we did that. Yeah, for sure. All right, moving along. Uh, question kind of related to an earlier question, but uh, uh, Jeff Vogel asked, what are your thoughts on intrusive pop-ups? Uh, they definitely get more email and SMS subscribers, but Google claims they don't like them and they penalize you. Uh, Google also tries to deliver the best content. Are you willing to take the potential SEO hit in return for more email slash SMS? and a larger owned audience or is free traffic from SEO worth more? Um, hmm. Jeff's a ninja here. Yeah. So like, like he's into this SEO yeah. deep, as you can tell, I would, I would yeah. like Jeff, the questions I would ask yourself are like, number one, um, have you tested this? Uh, have you tested uh, the same exact page with a pop-up for a month and without it, like, have you seen your rankings improve or drop? Have you seen any updates affect this? Um, look, I, me personally, I'm not a fan, right? Like I'm a marketer. So any marketing that's done to me, I hate it. Uh, but I would uh, look, I would, I would really test this number one. And then number two, like, I don't, I don't know if I know the answer to this. Are you doing any remarketing, Jeff? If so, like I would test if it is affecting my traffic, I would want the higher traffic and also be able to remarket. And, uh, but that's just me personally. And so like, um, those are the two tests I would run. Like I would want, if it's affecting the traffic, I would choose more traffic. Um, if it's not affecting traffic, I would figure out whether I'm getting a more, am I, am I helping more customers by getting them on my own audience list or am I helping more customers by getting them on my remarketing list? Yeah, I think, I think that, that the question does come down to that. I mean, absolutely. Google's policy say says that, yeah, disruptive interstitials as they call them are a no, no. Uh, how much, how that translates though into actual hits on your SEO traffic is probably fairly debatable. And I don't think it's going to be the same for every website either. Um, so as Ben says, absolutely testing that. Uh, if you've got enough traffic and enough organic traffic to actually do a decent test on that, then, I mean, that's always going to be the best answer is, is work out what it means specifically for your website um, and, and how Google looks at your website. Um, you know, so I'd, I'd, I'd look at that. Um, and, but then I'd be looking at, you know, um, if, if you did see a change in your organic traffic and whatnot, then it, it comes back to value. Like how much is your organic traffic worth to you? 
Um, if you had less of that, what impact would that have on your business? And then how much money are you making off your email and SMS? And if you feel that that has a greater pull overall and a greater uh, result for your business in terms of, you know, customer numbers, revenue, profit, blah, 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 then, you know, that's, that's going to answer the question for you. Yeah. And I know Jeff uh, a little bit more than most. Um, he's got a business in which if someone's coming for one thing, they're going to come for a lot of things. Uh, he's got a bunch yeah. of really cool businesses. I'm going to, you know, selfish plug here. Go listen to my podcast. It's called The BK Show, thebkshow.com. Check out episode 38. Jeff was on there uh, where he talks about a few different of his businesses. And I think it might open your eyes to like what else is possible out there. I know John and I, we, we, we talk a lot about high ticket drop shipping. Um, but I think, uh, you know, what Jeff does. Um, very, very similar. I think you could drop ship the same products, super, super niche, a little lower dollar amount. And actually, like, I think he's learning a lot from us of like, how could he incorporate higher ticket things into the same operation he's doing? And so, uh, yeah, a little selfish plug there. Go learn more about Jeff. He's a, he's a smart dude and he's a SEO ninja. So I love this question and, uh, I love Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, if you, if you've got a business where you're, you've got a solid plan in place for repeat business and, and repeat purchases and stuff, then I think email is, is the best way to do that. I think it's way better than retargeting ads. Um, you get a bit, much better result rate on that. So, I mean, if you're in that boat, then maybe the, you know, the, the, and your, and your, your, your pop-ups and things are actually getting a really good subscription rate with whatever you're offering through them. Um, then it, it would be hard to turn away from that unless, unless you had specific evidence that was hurting your, your SEO, I'd probably keep it going if it's working. Well, the next one is my favorite one that's being asked here. Uh, <laughs> Cause I I could geek out on this stuff too. Uh, Jimmy Landis says in the process of setting up my first store, if anyone has any recommendations regarding the best business credit cards to get in the U S would love to hear your thoughts. Um, I feel like I'm even like losing touch here, so I'm gonna give the best I have. And I know if Jeff Vogel's listening, Jeff's got a, a wicked uh, uh, a thing to do as well, and I'll try to touch on that at the end. But like for me, uh, it, uh, look, John, can you do anything first off before before I even address all the Americans? Can you do anything in Australia? Do you guys have any cool credit card perks over there? No, one of the sucky things about um, uh, Australia is when, when it comes to credit cards. No, it, it in comparison to the US and what credit card uh, companies offer you over there as uh, incentives to use them. Uh, ours are particularly terrible. Uh, so we, we don't have th- anything like, like cashback, for example. Uh, you don't get that in Australia at all. Um, you know, you can, get, you can get points, of course, and, and, and you get different points arrangements, but that's about it. Mm. Um, and so those can be handy. Like if you're spending a lot of money on your card, I mean, you can still get like free flights and all of that sort of stuff out of it, um, which is great. But I mean, there's not a massive spread amongst the benefits there. So, you know, I think for me, you know, I've always used like an Amex Platinum art or something like that. And that tends to be, you know, the best thing. Um, mm. But I've never, I've never seen, I mean, I don't know, the, the banking system in Australia is as boring as batshit. Um, and so there's not, there's not really ever anything new happening, which... Once again, it's frustrating, but uh, you guys over there in the US, uh, you know, have a much wider and more exciting <laughs> range of options. Yeah, I think there's too many. Like, 
not all of these programs are created equal. So like, I'm not going to take you down the rabbit hole of like signing up for 40 cards and maximizing this, but here's what I do in my businesses that I would definitely at least recommend to everyone. Uh, So number one, like I have an Amex gold card, which gives you four times points on shipping and on ads. And so, and that's up to your first uh, $150,000 in spend. And so if you spend up to $150,000 in ads, in the course of the year, you're going to get four times points on those, right? And so, um, let's start with that. Let's say you have six hundred. Now you have six hundred thousand points. How can I use these six hundred thousand points to the to the fullest? Uh, Jeff, uh, if, if if Jeff ever wants to come on and explain this, I would love him to. Jeff has found a way for you to move these points into a Charles Schwab account and like invest ten grand out of it. Like, uh, I'm I'm very interested in learning that one. What I do with my points is I end up traveling a lot. I love traveling. And so you can buy flights in your Amex portal, uh, but they're basically using like orbits, um, API in order to do this. And so your rates aren't that great. However, uh, I live right by Minneapolis, which is a Delta hub. And so I'm, I'm able to transfer those points one-to-one out of Amex into Delta and then I can fly pretty much anywhere first class for like 40,000 points. So that 600K that I'm going to get from running ads anyway, that's 12 round trip first class flights pretty much anywhere in America. Uh, or I've spent them on a trip to Thailand round trip in Delta One, which is laying down, uh, you know, taking a nap in a bed-ish uh, in the front of the plane for like 200,000 round trip, which is just incredible. And so like if I bought those on Amex, they'd probably be... 1.5 to two times as much, but that's where you're going to get your bang for your buck is transferring Amex gold into your airline of choice. Um, and if you don't have the airline of choice on there, usually their European counterpart is in there. And so you can transfer it to the European counterpart and then book, uh, um, like I can't remember what it is for American, but like, let's say it's British Airways. You would transfer them to British Airways and then book your American flights on there. Same, same. Um, the little known trick that I don't think people know about is like, let's say you spend more than 150 K on shipping and ads, which is totally plausible when you start getting into the seven and eight figures with your business. Um, you might think, Oh, well I've, I've already missed my Forex. Let's put them somewhere else. All you need to do is call Amex and say, Hey, I need, I need another card, same business. Uh, and they will just run your credit again and give you another card. Uh, and you can do this, I, I believe up to five times per business, which is just wacky. Right. And so that gives you up to 750,000 if I'm doing my math right or somewhere around there. Um, that can be four X'd, um, if you spend that appropriately. So that's what I like to do on the, on the, on the flip side of that, I use a capital one spark card, which is straight 2% back. Uh, that adds up very quickly. Um, if you just put all of your product purchases in, in there, it's basically like getting uh, 2% margins on every single one of your products that you purchase. Um, beyond that, I'm looking at BlockFi is coming out with a 1.5% back in Bitcoin. I'm very, very bullish on crypto uh, in the long term. And so I will take all of the Bitcoin I can get. And I think I'm going to start moving everything over to BlockFi when that card comes out. Um, on a personal note, I use the fold card as well. Same sort of thing uh, to get Bitcoin back. And so uh, that's where I recommend getting started. Just go get an Amex gold card. Uh, go get a Capital One Spark card. Uh, and if you really, really feel like it, go to bencanagarif.com slash Amex or slash Capital One. And uh, you can uh, use my referral link to get them. And then you should go refer people too. Because Amex will give you a bunch more miles for referring people. Capital One, I believe, gives you like 200 bucks a pop for every business that you refer. And, and literally every business should have these two cards. And so uh, by all means use mine and set them up for yourself and and go tell all of your business owner friends to to use those as well nice sounds good yeah 
you guys can do some really fun creative things over there with this sort of stuff i love it i'm big into the into the the bitcoin one because i think we're so 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 early like think of like facebook in like 2007 no one was using it no one knew it would become this behemoth that is today and clearly like clearly blockchains are the future and we are so fucking early it's unbelievable and so like uh i'm big on those cards of like how can i just stack you know stack sats as they say um and just load it up on there and like these these cards are so fun like just imagine if you're doing a million dollars in your business in one year um 60 70 percent of that is your product cost and so just take your you take your two percent on that six or seven hundred and it adds up really quick to to your bottom line uh let alone all of the uh, ads you're going to need to run to acquire those customers and you're getting points. And basically, look, I haven't sat anywhere but first class in five years and I'm never going back. I, I can't imagine why. And um, it's awesome. It Like not being crammed into a seat. I'm a big dude, but not being crammed into a seat is is worth it alone of, of just gaming the system. And, it, it, you know, this doesn't take that much effort to house these in certain cards and, and really reap the benefits that, um, you know, the credit card companies are offering this not for people like us. They want people to carry a balance and give them a bunch of money. We are their worst customers. Well, go be the worst customer you can fucking be and take advantage of this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things how you don't get that many legs up when it comes to the financial system and that sort of thing and the way all of that works. So you got to take, take whatever you can get for sure. Awesome. All right. So a couple of questions, uh, quick ones to you that I actually pulled out that I've been answering recently. I thought it, they would be useful to mention. Um, so we'll go get through these. These are pretty quick answers. How often should you update your negative keyword list in Google shopping or Google ads in your Google ads account? So your negative keyword list. Um, and I wanted to answer this one particularly because something I see a lot of people doing um, and particularly people who are a bit newer in their high ticket dropshipping journey. And I get why they do it from a certain perspective, but it's the wrong thing. People spend way too much time on this, right? Way too much time. People kind of fetishize their Google ads accounts. They're in there all the time looking at stuff and not really moving, moving the needle. And I think that's a mistake because when you're doing that, you're missing out on other things that you should be doing that are actually going to deliver you more returns. Having said that, how often should you update your negative keyword list? That's going to be determined a little bit by um, how much traffic you're getting and like what your spread of search terms you're still getting coming through in your in your shopping accounts are. The longer you've been updating your negative keyword list lists, the less frequently you have to do it, right? Because there's only so many search terms out there, and you know as they get bigger, and negative keyword lists can be thousands of words in size, of course. Um, you tend to have to do it less frequently than um, for a newer account where you're still uh, sort of discovering a lot of what the search traffic is. So I don't think there's there's a right or wrong answer, but you shouldn't be doing it every day is my answer. Man, I kind of want to fight you on this, John. I think if you, if, I think if you can, you should. Um, the problem is like, can you? Uh, and I don't... I, I don't think anybody has that kind of time. If you have the time to be in there, number one, you, uh, you're not doing a bunch of other shit in your business, but if you had it, like you should be in there. If you had an employee, fuck yeah, they should be in there every single day, like pruning that thing. Um, but it, in the beginning, definitely not like get in there. Uh, John, do you have a list in your course of like, here's a, 
here's a, I don't know, 7,500 words that I exclude on every single campaign. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, so I have one of those two, right? Like, so the first thing I do is like, I'll put that in there and it's just, you know, used, uh, cheap, a uh, bunch of like uh, phrase match stuff that I want to get out of there. Then I can take an uh, educated guess on the, the brand name and like the product name and, and any long tails I find doing keyword research. Uh, beyond that, you shouldn't have a whole lot slipping through. Like I depends on how you set it up. I, I prefer to use as many exacts as possible and less phrase and definitely no broad match uh, because that's just going to, that's going to give you a reason to go in there and find garbage after garbage after garbage. But if you set this up the right way, um, yeah, I would think once a week, once a month um, is enough at the beginning uh, when you don't have a whole lot of time to be in there every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, I don't think we're necessarily fighting on that. I mean, I think, like I know people who are early in their experience and they're in their Google ads account every single day looking at it and stuff. And it's like, because that's where they feel comfortable. And it's like, you don't need to do that. Like literally if you're making tiny little tweaks in there, the return on your time investment is tiny. Like adding an extra negative keyword here or there is not actually saving you money. And I'm saying this is somebody who's managed over hundred Google ads accounts. It's not, you're lying to yourself. Um, but it's, it's just somewhere where people feel comfortable. So they go there first and nobody has unlimited time and almost nobody who's running a high ticket dropshipping business has an employee managing their Google ads account. I can tell you that right now. I actually can't think of a single person who has their own employee doing that, um, which means either they're doing it or they've got an agency doing it. If you've got an agency doing it, fine. That's up to them. You're paying them to do it and they can do whatever they want. Um, but I'll tell you right now, even an agency you pay 2000 bucks a month to manage your accounts, which is on the upper end, they're not in there every day either. At most, they're spending 10 hours a month on your account. They're not even in there doing anything every day of the week. I'll tell you that right now because I've worked with some of them. I've talked to them. I know what they do. Um, you know, high ticket dropshipping business is always going to be a small account for them. It's not getting uber amounts of attention. But it's also the point that it's not necessary to do that. So once a week, I think that's great. That's a good number. If we have to pick a number, I think, as you say, once a week, probably fine for, for almost anybody. If you were churning in tens of thousands of visits a month through Google Shopping, once again, which a lot of people are not, then maybe you'd do it a bit more frequently. But yeah, once you build up your list, you shouldn't be doing it much at all. Um, I mean, I've got accounts I've been working on for two years or more where maybe I do it once a month, I think. Next question. How do you plan for holiday promotions? For example, recent one in the US, Memorial Day. Just had Memorial Day weekend, which a lot of people run promotions on in the e-commerce space. Or Black Friday could be another example. Or Christmas or New Year or, you know, whatever you want to pick. Um, one, a probably starting question, do you bother, Ben? And two, how do you plan for it? This is where, you know, I get to admit that I suck at email marketing. And so <laughs> I would say, <laughs> number one, I hate discounts. I fucking hate discounts. Like, I, I just hate giving them. Uh, I run them on my pets. But, you know, some people are like, I've been to your pet site. Yeah, because if I get one bottle in your hand, that shit's going to work. And you're going to come back for a long time. Because the moment your dog stops limping, you're not going to want him to go back to limping. Um, so that, like, uh, reoccurring revenue. I love discounts. Like, promotions, I hate. I I'm not even a, like the biggest fan of bundles. I think you can give value, but um, I just haven't seen the evidence 
that you can run these big holiday promotions and it's going to lead to anything other than burning the shit out of your list. And so, um, you know, number one, I want to be upfront and say I suck at, at uh, email and SMS. I think I have my head wrapped around it, but I've never executed in a great way. Uh, and, and number two, I hate discounts. So like, unless you can show me something great, John, I, I honestly, I don't know if I would do a whole lot. Uh, look, no, I'm, I'm actually a bit like you in that I, for a high-ticket dropshipping business, uh, once again, which has some very specific things going on and some very specific restrictions around it, I mean, as to what you can offer, uh, I don't tend to prioritize these things. I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about these things and, and I prefer often just to spend more time in general making more sales every day of the year rather than the, you know, 10 to 15 days of the year which follow in which sit inside one of these little you know special holiday periods now i know once again other parts of the e-commerce industry some people make a crap ton of their annual revenue from these sort of events fine they're doing something different right you know um you know you see certain industry experts out there pumping their latest black friday strategy um you know i won't name any of them here but I'm sure they're nice people, but they're selling $40 bits of makeup or something like that. Like, so what? That's got no relation whatsoever to a high ticket dropshipping site. Um, it's just, they're, they're doing different stuff. And so, yeah, I'm like, well, you run, I don't like running discounts on high ticket dropshipping sites either, because even if you, let's go oh, 15% off one, that's not really exciting. Like if you're going into Black Friday and your strategy is like, I'm going to offer 10% off uh, when most people are offering like 50% off um, that are not drop shipping. Like it's not really exciting for the customer, for starters. And two, yeah, you make a few extra sales, but your margin's smaller. So you're not making any more money. So what was the point? Um, and for a lot of people, you know, they can't even offer a 10% discount either. So it's kind of like, well, what are you doing? Uh, and I think you can spend way too much effort in doing it. Um, then it's actually going to generate a return for your business. Now, having said that, if you if you're in a space where you thought you could do something for your customers and you wanted to go down that path, I mean, yeah, for me, how do you prepare for it? You just, you know, you got to think about it ahead of time, right? You got to plan what's your actual promotion or promotions going to be? What products is it going to be? What are you going to offer? What's your what's the value you're offering your the customers? And then it's literally thinking up, thinking about you know, how are you going to offer that to people? So there's two ways you're going to do that. Uh, primarily, obviously, you're going to offer it on site to anybody who comes onto those pages. Um, but I'd have an email sequence that goes out to my email lists promoting that thing, you know, depending on how long the, you know, if it's a long weekend, for example, I probably have five emails that go out across that weekend. Um, I'd run retargeting ads specifically to people who have um, been interested in those products in the past and have visited those product pages. I'd run retargeting ads to my email list, um, you know, post it up on social media. If, you, if you're running search text ads around that, I'd put, I'd, I'd do some new search text ads targeting those products or, or people who are making relevant search terms, you know, hot, like advertising the fact that there's a promotion on right now. Um, and so you want to plan all that in advance a little bit. Um, and set it up so that when you come to that period, long weekend, whatever it is, all that stuff just runs automatically. Um, and you're not sitting there trying to scramble to put it together. 
But like I say, I mean, you have to have a real think about whether the time involved in doing all of that, um, because I mean, that's going to take you a bit of time to put that all together or money if you're paying someone to do it, is actually going to generate um, more profit for your business, not just more sales, because making sales, more sales for less profit, I mean, that's that might not be a very good use of your time. All right, two left, John. Let's burn through them. Uh, does anyone go further than emails for abandoned checkouts, e.g. phone calls, Bonjoro? This is from Simon. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and this obviously ties back to the early question we answered for John um, around, uh, you know, um, email, uh, the, the checkout, the drop-off between uh, abandoned checkouts and, and, uh, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I mean, you should be doing anything you can think of doing, uh, you should be doing, but primarily you should be thinking about working out, you know, what is the reason that somebody's abandoning the checkout and how can you help them through that? So um, yeah, if you get their phone number, you or somebody from your team should absolutely call them. Um, you will almost always have an email address. So yeah, if you're using a tool like Bonjoro to communicate with, with your customers after they purchase, let's say you're using it for thank yous or something like that, you could use that to send a personalized message via email to somebody who's abandoned the checkout, um, you know, and, 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 and that may well uh, help move them past wherever they're at or, or to get in touch with your team or something like that to help them. And, you know, so I think every little thing that you can do that you can think of doing, you should do. But yeah, I mean, the, the abandoned checkout emails, having a good sequence there will certainly convert uh, some people. Um, but, um, you know, <clears throat> if you can do more, you should do more. I mean, it's, it's an opportunity. You've got an opportunity there. And for a lot of people, there's just a really simple reason why they didn't finish that order. So getting, getting in front of them somehow to talk to them about that, you know, is, is, is kind of its low-hanging fruit, really. Yeah, I mean, number one, get a great abandoned checkout email flow set up. Like, actually... Yeah talk to the person behind there like that that should be step one right um that should be like i always say industry standard is like where, where you just started that's industry standard is get a fantastic abandoned email card sequence more than just hey did you forget this come back and buy um like literally have like talk to the human being behind there be thrilled that they even came to your site in the first place um you know write outlandish like very exuberant awesome emails that are talking to the person and then solve their problems um i think you can do this with with content as well and so like i i'm on top of uh i'm in agreement with john on the phone calls if you have the ability if you have someone on your team that can return those like you know, if you can set up a zap so that you get pinged in Slack and say somebody abandoned their car 10 minutes ago and you can call them back, do that. Every single time, mm -hmm. do that. If you can set up a Bonjuro to reach out to them as the owner and say, oh my goodness, there's a million websites on the internet and you chose mine, like, thank you so much for coming. Obviously, myself or my team or our website didn't live up to the par. Like, we didn't answer something for you. What is that? How can we help you? Um, do that too. Uh, is there, like, further things you can do there, such as running uh, remarketing ads? Uh, yes, you should be doing that too, right? And so, like, if there's anything you can do, I would be doing it. And, and hopefully, you know, between the phone calls, the Bonjuros, the remarketing, remarketing with content, remarketing with objection busting, um, between those ideas, hopefully that's enough to... to at least get you going uh, down the path of like, how can I take this beyond what, what industry standard is? Yeah. Yeah. And look, industry standard, as you say, it's that abandoned checkout flow, but it's also sending, you know, fairly boring emails in that email flow. Like ones that 
as you say, they're just like, oh, you you left your cart behind, come back and get it or, or something like that. Like, I mean, <clears throat> you know, yeah, you want to remind like, I mean, people know they didn't purchase your product. I mean, there's no point, I think, reminding them about that necessarily five times. Um, another pet hate of mine, which might be just be because I'm a marketer, is this sense that your your shopping cart is expiring. So by now, like that's really weak. Like everyone knows shopping carts don't actually expire. They can just add the products to their cart again after that. Like countdown timers, all that sort of stuff. I'd say focus more on um, what what are the reasons why people abandon the checkout and how can you help them. That's, I think, the strongest approach to take with those emails. And in the beginning, you don't necessarily know that, but you, you'll learn more by asking people. So when you get people on the phone, talk to them. You know, what, what was it that, you know, that didn't, as Ben said, maybe didn't live up to your expectations or didn't answer your question? How can we help you? And you'll learn that there's a set of, often there's a set of commonalities between people who reach that point in your marketing and, um you know, start addressing those in your abandoned checkout sequences and, and, and that'll be the best, the best approach. Yeah. The biggest thing to realize there is that it's a human being behind the screen. Like you're talking to another human being. And so the same guy who would walk in your store, pick it up, he carried it up to the counter and then he dropped it on the floor and walked out. Why did he do that? Like, you know, was your, was your, was your checkout lady, was, was she, you know, did she have resting bee face? Like, um, you know, is, is your cart look shitty? Did, did you not object, like bust any of the objections they had? Uh, was, did the guy just get a phone call and he had to run off? Like there's a million things that could have happened, but that was a human there and, and addressed that it's a human. Yeah, totally. Last question. This was one that was asked by Tina somewhere along the line. How do you stay productive? So, um, I think the original question was around, you know, what, what a lot of people think is that hard work is what gets the job done, but, you know, long hours, that sort of thing. Um, but of course we know from experience that if you just work, like it, it's not working lots that makes you productive because, you know, past a certain point every day, your productivity drops off, blah, blah, blah. But um, what, what's important for you, Benny, to, to make sure that when you're, when you're like, what do you need to do around your, your time that you're doing your business to make sure that when you are doing your business, you're on top of your game? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to jump way out here and, and, and maybe go a little abstract, get a coach, like to, to, to think that John and I have this all figured out and that we're doing everything we should do every day is insane. We don't know what the fuck we're doing either. Like we're like, I have a system that tries to keep me productive, but I have, I have all the signs of ADD and ADHD. Uh, I have like three big projects that I need to get done right now. And since those three big projects aren't done, I'm not doing anything else. Guess what? I'm still not doing the three big projects because I'm sitting here in my head going, fuck, I got three big projects to do. Uh, and so I just sit here and do nothing sometimes and play poker online and, uh, you know, or play uh, online craps or something like that uh, just to like get my mind off the fact that I have three big projects to do, which are keeping me from doing all the other projects. And so I have a to-do list system. I have all of those things, but like realistically, like, like if I didn't have my coach on my case, like he literally texted me this morning and said, do you have those videos done for John? Which is one of the big projects. Um, I, I probably wouldn't have recorded the one video I got done today. And so like, don't, number one, don't beat yourself up. And like, number two, go get a coach, somebody that can hold you accountable because um, this shit's hard, man. And we all struggle with all the same stuff. And so like, it'd be really easy for me to give you like, here's 10 tips I did and four books I read and like create a to-do list system. Like, 
I don't know what's going to work for you. Uh, all I know is what has so far kind of worked for me. And that's, that's having someone hold me accountable. Other than that, like, man, I think all the systems can work or they could not work. And, and you have to choose to work the system. And, uh, we all have our own issues. Like I, I've got my own commitment issues on like getting the shit done and as well as struggling with some AD, ADD and ADHD, things like that. And so, um, what's worked for me is just that is like, don't beat myself up and go get a coach that can help me with this. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. And yeah, bit, probably not what people would expect, but I think it's a good answer. Uh, and I think, you know, making sure that you're, I, I think you've really got to do the, you know, do the sort of self-work, the work out what, like, what are your barriers? Like what, what, what are the things that, you know, kind of get in your way? Like, because a lot of the time it's, it's something, it's your own, it's your, it's you that stops yourself being productive as, as you're saying. So, you know, spending the time to, and working with somebody to work out what those are and, and how you can take that into account every day is, um, and what you need to get shit done is uh, very important but you know to go a bit more traditional outside of that like i'm uh and, and this was the mistake that i've made from time to time but i mean it's very easy when particularly when you're a solo sort of entrepreneur but anybody who runs a business it's really easy to let your business become sort of all-consuming and i think that's the mistake um you know you've got to you've got to take the time and it's the answer to this is different for everybody what, what it needs to be but you've got to make sure that you are taking the time just like to do whatever it is for yourself, whatever you need to outside of business. Like if, if business is everything for you, then I can probably almost guarantee you you're not that productive. Um, like for me, if I don't take time away every day to do something else, if I don't get enough sleep, um, I'm terribly unproductive the next day. Or if I do that for a number of days in a row, like, man, my shit just goes down the drain. It's terrible. Um, you know, so simple things, you know, obviously that's something I found from having children <laughs> is, uh, you know, I notice when I don't get enough sleep, man, it kills me. It kills, I'm just not, I can't think, you know, I can't focus, I procrastinate. Um, and just the simple change of making sure I get the amount of sleep that my body needs, which I've learned over time what that is, and it's not the same for everybody, is, you know, for me, a fundamental thing in being productive. So, um, yeah. I think you've just got to, you know, for other people, it might be diet, exercise, all that sort of stuff. Like all of that is getting all of that stuff dialed in um, as well as, as Ben says, you know, getting, getting somebody else, getting accountability, all of that sort of thing is, is I think the, you know, I didn't think that, I didn't think that any of that stuff in the beginning, I was just like, man, I'm just going to work on my business and I'm going to do it, you know, 18 hours a day and it's going to be awesome. And of course it wasn't. I think that I think it's all self work, man. I I really I, I hate coming back to this answer because it's not like I know the position some people are in when they write that question and they're like, man, just give me the two nuggets that would get me to work. like it doesn't work like that. And so like, yeah. ask yourself this: when you're asking us, how do you be? How are you more productive? How is this worded? How do you stay productive? Where else is this showing up in your life? Are you unproductive in your diet? Are you unproductive in your health? Are you unproductive in your relationships? Like, 
there's a deeper issue here and it has nothing to do with you being productive in work and getting shit done or it, it's like anytime you see something showing up in your business it probably showed up in your personal life first and it probably showed up in you and so like it's it's the self-work that really shifts gears here like john and i can tell you the 37 steps to master your productivity but it doesn't matter uh if you haven't solved your own stuff and so uh, i would encourage you to to think about your priorities and, and work on some of that internal stuff and 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 go get a coach go sounds good that's all, all right. I got. well that's good that's a good place to end that was our final question from our q a so uh, i'm happy that we got those ones knocked over because they've been uh, they were put up to us a while ago we didn't get to them on our last q a but uh i hope guys that that was uh, helpful for you um, those answers and as we mentioned at the start you know if you've got more questions if this is you know thrown more questions out in your mind uh, if you've got some other burning topics that you'd love us to talk about uh, for yourself and where you're at right now send them through post them up in the Facebook group um, post them up on you know comments in our members area direct message me or benny um however you can get them out there get them out there and we'll absolutely run through them in an upcoming episode i've got one more thing john uh, i'm gonna make this as public as i could be um my name's not benny <laughs> I, you know i think it all like i'm trying to think where it all started because my wife asked me the other day why does john call you benny um i think it all started because my name in like one of the old forums was benny k um yeah and so everyone calls you benny k yeah everybody called I, me I figured benny. that's what you called yourself no um i actually don't know why i chose that and like to think that in that small little group we were in that my name was gone like number one my name's weird uh no one has it in the entire world and so like I, i'm not sure why i was forced into benny k 99 or whatever it was but like um yeah i actually don't like being called benny so let's uh let's squash that here on episode 11 uh yeah Maybe I'll just call you that when I'm annoyed with you. <laughs> Benny! Uh, no, I, yeah, no, I, uh, I'm not a fan. So uh, most people call me BK in my, in my real life. If you guys want to call me BK, that's why it's called the BK Show. Cool. <laughs> You're going to call On me that Benny exciting night, now. guys. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah, back. I'm always going to call you Benny. Uh, cool, guys. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you all soon. <laughs>